You can turn over in your Bibles to Second Peter, Second Peter, chapter two. We've been talking about the M.O. of false teachers, and uh, the last couple of weeks we've looked at diff- different uh, uh, points dealing with these false teachers. We looked at the, the sphere of their operation in verse one there of chapter two. It says, "But false." Prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. And we talked a little bit about how that first part of that verse talks of the nation of Israel. There were false teachers that rose up even back then. But he also says that there will be false teachers among you, the church. And then we looked at the stealthiness of their operation. It says in verse 1 that they will secretly introduce themselves, uh, introduce destructive heresies. And so they come in not boldly, but they come in um, disguised. And so it's not always easy to spot what we would call a false teacher because they may look like a wonderful individual on the outside, but you have to be very careful what they say. And then thirdly, we looked at the sin of their operation that even they denied the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And we talked a little bit about what that, that meant that they weren't They were unable and unwilling to yield their lives to the Lordship of Christ. And as a result of their unyielding heart, it says that God brings destruction upon them. And we talked uh, a little bit about how God uh, works as far as salvation goes. And we, we discussed that we can't save ourselves. It's not us that 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 just in and of ourselves have the wherewithal to turn to God and to repent of our sins and do that all on our own. We can't do that. The Bible says that we're slaves to sin. So many people think that, oh, we have a free will, we have a free will. Well, the Bible says that we are slaves to sin before we come to Christ. That doesn't sound like someone who has a free will. You have a free will to sin. That's your default. But that doesn't mean that there's some goodness in you that somehow you can choose to do uh, the right thing. The Bible says we're lost in our sin. There's none good, no, not one. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have gone astray. And so we need to remind ourselves that the reason we are saved is solely because of the grace of God who touched our lives and transformed our heart from one of stone into flesh. And he gave us the ability to understand the gospel. He took the blinders off our eyes by his grace. And as a result, we're gloriously saved. No one will ever be in heaven saying, I'm here because I chose God. I, I made the right decision. No, they're going to be bowing down at the feet of Christ saying, worship the Lamb for his grace and his mercy in their lives because they know that they don't deserve to be there. The only reason they're there is because that God has touched their heart and their lives. But these people, the false teachers, have this sin of denying the master. They're unwilling to yield their hearts. And that's really the, the crux of salvation, isn't it? I mean, when you share the gospel with someone, you can share the gospel until they're blue in the face or you're blue in the face, either one. But you know what? If God is not drawing their heart, if God is not giving them the ability to see the lostness 
of the state in which they are, in the unfall, in the in the sinful state that they're in, the fallen state. Uh, if God doesn't take the blinders off their eyes and allow them to dispose of their own self-righteousness, they will not be saved. It's only God who works in the human heart. And so when we share Christ with people, you know, we want to make sure that we're giving them the right information. We give them the information that points them to their own sin, that shows them that without a doubt they are in sin before a holy God. And as they begin to realize that fact and as God begins to draw their heart, one of two things is going to happen. They're either going to grow harder toward the gospel or they're going to melt and they're going to become undone. They're going to realize, wow, there's nowhere else to go for salvation. Well, false teachers basically think that they have kind of a corner on the truth and they have the ability to somehow make the truth up as they go. And because of that, they're unwilling to, to yield their hearts to not only God, but the authority of his word. You can always tell a false teacher when they begin to wander outside the realm of Scripture. If they're outside of this book, beloved, there, there, there may be a problem. I'm not saying there's, there's not information that we can learn outside of the Bible. Clearly there is. But when it comes to spiritual matters and when it comes to our spiritual growth, we want to make sure that we're looking at the right place, the place of truth, the source of truth. And that tells us, the Word of God tells us, that not only is Christ the source of truth, but His Word is the source of truth. And then we also saw the success of their operation. It says there are many will follow. You think, well, why are so many people following these people? Because they tickle their ears. Because there's a, that leads to the next one, kind of a, a sensuality about their operation. They, they seem to draw people in because they, they appeal to their flesh, their fleshly desires, their felt needs, you might say. I talked to a pastor one time, and he said, well, you know, I don't you know, it's hard sometimes to, to teach the Bible because sometimes people just don't want to hear it. It's hard to teach doctrine because people, you know, they think it's boring and, and they just don't, they don't want to endure it. And I said, you're right. They don't. <laughs> that doesn't mean you don't do it. That's kind of like if you had a little baby and, and all they wanted to eat was sugar. Every day, that's, you know, you, you wouldn't do that as a parent. You wouldn't just give your baby, you know, teaspoons of sugar and then you know when they had a bottle you could put sugar in the water and give them that i mean you know that would be crazy as a parent you wouldn't do that why because it's not nourishing for that child it wouldn't help them even though it may appeal to their senses and so we need to make sure that we understand that and so it's their this sensual operation it says there also in verse two but they also leave a scar because it says because of them the way of truth has been will be maligned, will be maligned, it will be blasphemed. Um, when, when false teachers stand up and misrepresent what the Bible is saying, it's a very serious thing. And there's people that follow these individuals, and when they follow those individuals, those are the scars I'm talking about. You know, there's people that are caught up in, in churches that are, are very much not teaching the Bible, they're, they're teaching, you know, whether it's health, wealth, gospel, or whatever it might be, but they're not teaching the Bible. And it's always, oh, the, thus saith the Lord. The Lord told me this this morning, and I need to share this with you. You know, they would do a lot better just staying in the Word of God. 
And then there's also a scheme to their operation. Verse 3, it says, In their greed they will exploit you with false words. They have a purpose. They have a scheme to it. It's not just accidental. I mean, they make it look like on the outside, boy, these guys are great. They even have pictures a lot of times of orphans somewhere in some foreign country they're helping. And if you give, you know, this money goes to them. Trust me. Trust me. When the secular press does exposés on these individuals and they find them wanting, how much more as Christians should we be skeptical? And so we have to be careful because their, their scheme is driven by their pure greed. And inevitably, when you look at a false teacher, you will not find someone who's poor. You won't find someone who's poor. Matter of fact, you'll find someone who's highlighting their wealth. You hear some of these guys talk on TV. Yeah, I got a Learjet. God bless God, he gave me a Learjet. And I, I need to you know, minister for, for God all over this world. And the best way to do it is, and most efficient way for me is to have a Learjet. And so you know, people gave millions and millions of dollars for them to have their own little private Learjet so they could fly around the country and spew their lies or they talk about their own wealth and how God has blessed them. There's nothing wrong with being rich. Don't get me wrong. I mean, that's, that's not the issue. The Bible says it's not having money. It's the what? The love, right? The love of money is what does us in. And these false teachers are driven by a pure greed that just says, you know what, we just love money and we just want to take it from whoever we can. It doesn't matter if it's that 90-year-old grandmother that has no money to live on next month. She's going to be blessed if she sows a seed with my ministry and they'll take her $10 check or $100 check or whatever. They don't care. They really don't care. That's their scheme. Well, today we're going to look at the sentence of their operation. What happens to these individuals and uh, let me read for you in first, second Peter, excuse me, second Peter chapter two. And I'm just going to read from verse one down to verse nine. It says, but false teachers or false prophets also arose among the people and there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains or pits, of gloomy darkness, to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds, and he saw that he saw and he heard. Then the Lord knows how to keep or how to rescue the godly from trials 
and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Wow, what, a, what an incredible section of Scripture here we have. And you notice here, remember, we, this chapter, chapter 2 isn't really a, a new chapter because it plays right off of chap, or verse 21 of chapter 1, talking about no prophecies ever come by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, but false prophets also arose among you. And here today we're going to look at the judgment of these false prophets, the sentence of their judgment. What is going to happen to them? What well, tells us right here in verse 3, it says their condemnation or their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. There's a promise here that these false teachers, these false prophets will be judged and it will be done in God's time. Notice it says that they will they will not face this eternal judgment until death. Their sentence was decreed long ago, it says, in verse 4, or in verse 3 there. Their condemnation was long, from long ago is not idle. You know, if you ask some people, where did sin originate? And the typical answer is always where? In the garden. Do you know that's not really right? That's not correct. <laughs> because there was some angels, remember the story, who uh, had a little issue with God. And uh, Lucifer, the chief angel, had a little pride in his heart, you might say. And he basically, in his heart, wanted to be God himself. And God cast him out, a third of the angels out, of heaven. They're fallen angels. They're angels who have sinned. And when you stop and you think about that, that, that these, these angels who have sinned clearly, all right, have a falseness to their, their character and their teaching. And so he says here in verse 3, he says, their condemnation from long ago is not idle. See, God condemned those who turned their will against God, even in the angelic realm. The angels are far above us. They're far above us. And what Peter's doing here is he's giving examples, or samples, you might say, of people who have been judged by God. Kind of showing us, look, I'm not, you know, I may be patient, But this is not going to just continue forever. There will be consequences to these people's sins. And so he points out to us really quick. He says, first of all, there's angels who have sinned. He talks about them in verse 4. And then he says, in the ancient world, there were some issues back then. And then he talks specifically about the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. We're going to get into that next week. Today, we're just going to focus on the angels. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. In other words, it it strengthens the idea that, you know what, this is going to happen. It's not something that's called into question. A lot of people think, well, you know, I don't know if God's really going to come back and Christ is going to come back and judge the world. I don't believe all that stuff. I just think you live each day as you want. And No, that's not true. 
The Bible says very clearly that one day Jesus will return to earth. And when he returns to earth, beloved, he is not coming back as a savior. He's coming back as a ruler, as a judge. And he will judge the earth. And it's, it's incredible to understand that, you know what, this is the window of grace. This is the window we live in today. We live in the church age, an age of grace. The opportunity awaits for people to turn to the Savior and to realize, hey, I can't save myself. I need somebody outside of myself to deal with my situation. And as a result of that, when they turn to Christ, God draws them. They're saved gloriously from their own sin. And even back then, people were saying, well, I don't know if God's going to judge these people. They've been around for years. These false teachers are all over the place. As a matter of fact, you could almost say the opposite, that God isn't judging any of these false teachers. Look at how they live. They live in wealth and opulence, fly around the country and live in multiple multi-million dollar homes. They have money coming out their ears, some of these individuals. You're saying God's going to judge them? doesn't look like God's judging them now. Well, he may not be judging them now. But that's what Peter's point is. It's not idle. It's in the work. God's sentence against every lying teacher is kind of just accumulating God's wrath until each one of them perish in a place called hell. It says their destruction is not asleep. It's almost Peter is saying, hey, you know what? Picture me as the executioner and I'm going to take care of this. And just if somebody was led from the death row into the, the gas chamber or the electric chair, there's a certain point of no return. And when that switch is thrown, there's no returning. There's no going back. The governor can't call after that point and say, wait, 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 wait. No. They have to follow the execution through. And that's the idea here. That's what Peter is trying to, to explain to his readers. That God is not asleep at the wheel here. Even though it may seem in our world everything going awry that somehow God has lost control. No, he hasn't. We serve a sovereign God. And God will one day administer his wrath and his righteous judgment upon those who falsify and teach erroneously his word for the sake of lining their own pockets. Well, verse 4 says this, For if God did not spare the angels. That word if can also be translated since, and it's probably better because if kind of puts a question mark into it, like did this happen or not? Well, it did happen. We know it happened. And so it says there basically, since God did not spare angels when they sinned. In other words, what Peter is saying is thinking these false teachers that we're dealing with are human beings. And I just want to give you a couple examples from history, that God is going to judge. He does not let things just fly under the, under the radar. And so the first one he pulls out here for us are the group of angels. He says that God did not spare angels when they sinned. Hmm, well, what's he talking about here? When you stop and you think about that, that, that God did not spare angels, angels are basically a lot... Um, higher beings than we are. They're, they're kind of a notch above us. But there's a couple of things you need to know about angels. Is angels can sin, clearly, because they did. A third of the angels sinned against God. 
And we can read about that in various texts in Scripture. And they were cast down. They were cast out of heaven, the Bible says. Is that what he's talking about here? Is that the group of angels maybe he's talking about is when they rebelled against God in heaven and he threw them out of, out, of, uh, out of heaven and cast them down the earth? Well, it can't be them because they're still around. <laughs> That's what we would call demons or evil spirits. Those angels, those fallen angels, are still around. The interesting thing about angels is they can clearly be lost, but you know what? They can never be redeemed. They can never be saved. Their, 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 their fate is, is sealed, you might say. So who does he have in mind here in verse 4 when he says, since God did not spare angels when they sinned? Because he says the same thing in verse 5. Look at what he says. He says, if he did not spare the ancient world... In verse 6, if he did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah. See, he's given us examples of God's judgment, of of people who've gone away from God's truth. Because remember, God is a, a God of truth. And lying to him is a very serious thing. Especially when you do it in the his name and you do it to kind of bless yourself. And so he gives us these three examples and he says, so you think that somehow these these human beings are going to get away with this? Trust me, they're not. They're going to be judged. At some point, they're going to be judged. And these angels, I think, that he's talking about, it's not the angels that got cast out of heaven. We know that. But he uses these angels, these fallen angels, as an illustration. And he says, if God did not spare these angels, why do you think he would spare some human beings? No matter how exalted these angels were in relationship to man, when they crossed God's truth, when they went against God's truth, they were judged. Some commentators believe that the reason he used the word angels is because angels are such elevated beings And one characteristic about false teachers is they almost elevate themselves. And other people elevate them. And you see that sometimes. I've seen interviews with people about, I mean, not even even the the false teachers that, that we know to be false. You know, some of these guys on the TV. But I mean, some real radical, crazy false teachers. That anybody would think, yeah, this guy's not not in it for the right purpose and he's definitely teaching some erroneous doctrine. You know, but in the end, when you interview the followers, they're just like, oh no, no, no. You got it all wrong. They just can't see it. They can't see it. They're deceived. And the important thing here is that it says God did not spare these angels. And even though people lift up false teachers and false teachers lift themselves up and exalt themselves like an angel, maybe. When they sinned, it says God cast them into hell. God cast them into hell. You don't hear too many sermons on hell today, do you? You just don't. It's just not a real topic that a lot of people spend a lot of time teaching on. But you've got to remember the highest angel of all, his name was Lucifer, 
And when he decided that he wanted to be like God, out of his own pride, Revelation 12 tells us that one-third of the holy angels, because of their rebellion against God in pride, they were lifting up themselves, exalting themselves against God, God cast them out. And they fell, and they were doomed to damnation. There's no way these, these angels can ever be saved. You call them fallen angels, you can call them demons or evil spirits, whatever you want. But that's not who Peter has in mind here, that group. That's not who he has in mind here. Because it says right here, if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them where? On the earth? No, it says into hell. Into pits of darkness. So it can't be all the demons that are running around the earth. That's not, that's not the group that he's talking about here, because they're still running around. They're running around loose. They're doing Satan's bidding. The Bible says that we wrestle not against what? Flesh and blood, but against principalities. Spiritual wickedness of darkness, all that stuff. That's what we, we wrestle against in the spiritual world. All those titles are, are titles of, of four demons, you might say. And so, this group that Peter has in mind, they did something so horrendous, they not only got kicked out of heaven, it's part of that bigger group, but they went even further. That caused God's wrath to fall upon them when they sinned, and he had to cast them into hell. Interesting word when you look at that that word in our English Bibles, but cast them into hell. See that? That's basically one word in the Greek. It's one word. Tartarus. That's the word. Not tartar sauce. Tartarus. (laughs) Big difference. Tartarus. It's one of the names... Basically, the, the, the only place it's, it's used here, I, I believe, in Scripture for, for hell. And some, some translations uh, most read uh, hell. Okay, I don't, I don't know of too many that read, read Tartarus. But the, the, the Greek word comes out of Greek mythology. It's not even really a biblical word. Because when Jesus spoke of hell, the word he always used in the original language was Gehenna. And the reason he used that word was because it was a picture of a dump outside of Jerusalem where they would take all their garbage and all their trash and this, this, this valley where they'd throw all the trash would continually burn. It's just a stench, horrible place. And it was always burning. There was always smoke coming out of all this trash. And when Jesus used word pictures to describe hell, he used that word Gehenna because people knew exactly what he was talking about. The fire doesn't go out. It just continually burns this garbage up. But here he uses the word Tartarus. Somehow God tartarized these these angels. He sent them to Tartarus. We have in our English Bibles, hell, because that's what it's, it's used as a reference for. But when you stop and you, you think about all that that is, that, is, that is happening here. What did these angels do that they're not free like the other, the other fallen angels to roam around like demons do, but they're, they're actually restrained. 
It says, because, and committed them to chains or pits of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And when you stop and you think about that, that, that Greek word, the, the mythology comes out of the idea that, that, that Tartarus is a place that's even lower than hell, lower than Hades. <laughs> it's the other word they'd use. It's the lowest place for the wicked, you might say. Rebellious gods and people were sent there in their, their mythology, their Greek mythology, to receive the worst kind of punishment. It was the lowest place as far as punishment that you could be in that culture. And so when, when God chose that word to use here, he has a very specific group of angels in mind that they did something so horrendous that they were not only cast out of heaven, but they were immediately thrown into a judgment place called Tartarus. Into the deepest hell. It says that they were committed to chains, or some translations might, your translation might read pits. They were committed, that has the idea that they were imprisoned. They were taken hostage. They were imprisoned. Have you ever thought about what it's like to be in prison? Or imprisoned? <laughs> I was talking to Chris, Chris Santo, and he had the opportunity to have a prison ministry for eight years. And we're not talking the county jail here. We're talking the big-time prison. He'd go in and have services with these prisoners and uh, be praying about that because if you're, if you're interested in something like that, that kind of ministry, um, you think about it, you've got a captive audience, right? <laughs> I mean, they're definitely a captive audience, and they need to hear the gospel. Um, it's incredible ministry you can have. Um, we're really praying about maybe starting something like that back up. If you're interested in that, talk to me or talk to Chris, and he can explain a little more about it. We don't know how or when or what, what, what it looks like yet, but, but he's got some experience in that area. But he says, before you go... You have to kind of be brief. You, you can't just kind of go and show up and say, hey, I'm coming into prison. No, they've got to kind of share some, some rules with you. It has to do with your own safety. It has to do with the safety of the prisoners, guards, everything. Certain things you can do, certain things you can not do, certain things you can bring in, you can't bring in certain things. But when you're in prison, you don't get to do whatever you want. That's the whole idea. And it says here that these angels, these mighty beings far superior to us, were turned over for imprisonment in this place, this horrible place called Tartarus, a pit of darkness. That word pit, the original language, we get the word silo from. Anybody know what a silo is? You ever grow up on a farm? Our brother Tom had a farm, and when he died, he had made arrangements for an individual to come out and buy one of his big silos. Things huge. And I said, how are they going to, how do they move it? He goes, oh, they take it apart. <laughs> it comes apart in sections. And a silo is used to what? Store grain. 
Well, see, back in this culture, what they would do is they wouldn't store it in a big silo because they didn't have that kind of technology, but they would dig deep pits in the ground and they would store them under the ground. And so here the picture is that these angels, these fallen angels were being committed to this, this, these pits, terrible place. Storage place, you might say. You're, you're asking, well, what in the world did these angels do? <laughs> I mean, they must have done something pretty crazy to have to be treated this way. The other guy, the other fallen angels are roaming around the earth. But these angels sinned in such a way that they were sent to this deepest, severest place of punishment, of judgment. Um, Jesus talks a little bit about hell, and he, he uses certain terms when he talks about hell. And in one place, over in, in Matthew chapter 8, he shares a little bit about hell. And you know, it's important that we understand what heaven's about, right? We understand what hell is about. Um, I think a lot of Christians want to stress the heaven part and we forget about the hell part. <laughs> um, but there's a real place called hell. It's a literal place. In Matthew chapter 8, he's talking here about the uh, faith of the centurion. And he says in verse 10, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at, at, at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But then look at what it says in verse 12. It says, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown where? Into outer darkness. All right? Outer darkness. One one. Description of hell is just that. It's outer darkness. Pits of darkness. Chained up in these pits of darkness. That's what Second Peter is talking about. It has the idea that you can't even see the hand in front of your face. And then it goes on there and it talks about the weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's other descriptions of hell. Hell is a very real place. Hell is a place of judgment for all those who are unwilling to bend their knee to the Savior. And it's very important that we understand we're all going to hell. We were all going to hell. The whole creation was on its way to hell. That's what the Bible says. We've all fallen short. We all incur the judgment of God in our lives. And God in His grace, Ephesians says, before the foundation of the world, somehow reached down into all those people, all his creation was going to hell, and in his grace he reached down and he chose some who would be saved. Incredible. Did you ever ask yourself, why did God save me? <laughs> why did God save me? Why, why would God do that? I mean, I appreciate it, but what about this person over here? What about that person over there? See, we, we can't question those things because we don't know. 
It has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with God. God in his sovereign choice, in his sovereign sovereignty, he set his love upon us, the Bible says, before there was even in us here physically. <laughs> and that's what makes our salvation such an incredible gift. I mean, it's one thing to ask somebody for somebody, right? Something. Say you have Christmas coming up and, hey, I want this special gift. And your parents make a list or your friends make a list and they buy you that gift. Well, you ask for it. Okay? But think what an incredible thing it is to get something you didn't, you didn't even have any clue. You didn't even ask for That's how incredible our salvation is, beloved. And so when we stop and we, we think about that, that's what we're saved from. We're saved from God's judgment, God's wrath because of our sin. We're saved from this place called hell. But here these angels who sinned were sent to the deepest subterranean pit of blackness that there could be. And they were held there, it says. They're reserved, it says in verse 4, they're reserved for judgment. They're committed to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Well, let's find out what these angels did. That's what we really want to know. What did they do? Why did God choose to segregate these, angel, these fallen angels to, to a place of torment, and yet all these other fallen angels, these demons, are running all over the place? What did they do? And, and, and by the way, I mean, the, the rest of the demons are loose. They're, they're running around. Um, in Matthew chapter 8, it tells us, once again, it says, when Jesus came to the other side of the country of the Gerardines, remember, the demoniac, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. And they were so exceedingly violent, the Bible tells us, that no one could pass by the road. They were just crazy. They were possessed. They were crazy. They were possessed by one of these demons. And it, behold, they cried out to Jesus, when they saw him, being the, the demons cried out of, uh, out of the body of these people, and it says, what do you have with us, you son of God? And then you stop and you look at that, and the next verse says this, have you come here to torment us before the time? In other words, these demons were afraid that somehow Jesus was coming to throw them in this pit with the other demons. Because right now they're free to go wherever they want. Under the sovereign hand of God, obviously, but they're, they're pretty much free to roam the earth. And so when Jesus confronted them in Matthew 8, they said, hey, wait, what are you here for? Are you here to kind of end all our fun and put us in judgment like all those other demons? Ask yourself, do, do the demons know where they're going to go, where they're going to end up? Yeah, they do. They don't want to go there. And somehow there's a line that God has drawn in the sand for the demonic forces. And this group that Second Peter's talking about crossed that line. You might say as, as wicked and as vile as demons are, somehow God has built in to the system here a line that will not be crossed. And when that line is crossed, all bets are off. And so even the demonic forces, 
that are around us every day are somewhat restrained in their demonic activity, in the, in the wickedness and evilness of their own, own being. Because they don't want to cross that line. They don't want to be thrown into this restraining, horrible place where the rest of these demons are. Matter of fact, in Luke 8, chapter 8, verse 31, he says this, And when they were entreating him, Luke 8, 31, the demons said, they asked him not to commend them to depart into the abyss. They knew where they were going to end up, and they didn't want to go there yet. And so it's kind of interesting. You think about that. You think that somehow God has put this built-in restraint. But these angels that Second Peter's talking about here have crossed the line. They've crossed the line. And you say, well, what, what exactly did they do? Look over to your right in the book of Jude, a couple pages. And this explains a little bit more about what Second Peter is talking about. Second Peter and Jude are very, very similar. Look at verse 6. It says, and the angels who did not stay, same group that we're talking about here, within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. Wow, what does that mean? The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Then look at verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. What was that unnatural desire? The unnatural desire that he's talking about here is homosexuality. That's what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's drawing, making a link here, just as as those men didn't stay within their, their proper dwelling, they went after their own kind, which was abnormal. It was abnormal back then, and it's abnormal today. It's a sin in God's eyes, very clear. With that being said, it's important that the Church of Christ understand that these people need Christ. People that are given over to the homosexual lifestyle need Christ. They need to hear the truth. They don't need to be shunned. They need to be shown the cross. They need to be shown God's forgiveness, shown God's grace. They need to be shown that there's a way out of their sinful lifestyle. That's what needs to happen. So somehow, he says, just like the the men in Sodom and Gomorrah went after strange flesh, they went after their own kind, these angels did the same thing. They did the same thing. Not that they went after men, but the Bible tells us that they actually went after women. And he's just drawing that, that illustration there. For us to see. And so these demons, these fallen angels, did the same thing. 
And as a result, God had to destroy the whole world, basically, because of what happened. Now, look back at, at, at 1 Peter chapter 3, because it talks about this too. So we got one piece of the puzzle. Look at, at 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And then look at what it says. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. But when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So you think today we got it bad when you look around with the moral debauchery and everything that's going on. I mean, there was only eight people on the earth that were righteous back in Noah's day. So you got to stop and consider that. It's, it's kind of an important thing. But somehow, these angels are here. These speaks of spirits. They're, they're put in prison. This is the, the same group. And Christ went there after he died in his spirit, and he proclaimed victory. That's that word, Caruso. He proclaimed a triumph to these imprisoned spirits. The ones that were in Tartarus. And you say, well, why would he do that? The ones who went after this The Bible says strange flesh. Why would Christ do that? You have to understand, when Christ died on the cross, the demon population, what did they think? They won. They thought, this is it. This is victory. The Savior's dead. We won. And so right in the middle of their little, you might say, celebration victory there, their little celebration dance or whatever, Christ shows up. And he showed up in such a way he pronounced his victory over them. You look at at verse 20 there, 1 Peter 3.20. Who were these spirits? They were disobedient. When? When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. So these fallen angels left their proper sphere, you might say, and and lusted after mankind, particularly women. And as a result, they were judged and thrown into Tartarus until the judgment day. And these spirits, by the way, they are angels. They're fallen angels. Um, Peter calls people souls in verse 20. And so they're they're not... they're not people. They're something separate from people. And that they, they would be the fallen angels. All the way back in Genesis 6, all the way back to the time of Noah, I mean, this is, this is clearly a, a debased time, a debased culture, because there's only eight people who are righteous during that time. They go all the way back then, in Genesis 6, it tells us this. It refers to these angels. In the Old Testament, angels were called the sons of God. 
That's what they were called. They were called the sons of God. It says in Genesis 6, It came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God, the angels, that's what that refers to, they saw the daughters of men and they saw that they were beautiful and it says that they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Somehow, and we don't completely understand, I don't completely understand this, I don't think anybody completely understands this, somehow these demons took on male form and they started cohabitating with these women. John MacArthur brings out an excellent point. He asks the question, why do you think they would do that? And he says this, I believe they did it to breed an unredeemable race of demon men so as to damn that race no matter what Christ did. Remember, angels cannot be redeemed. As long as men were men, the God-man could redeem them. But if they became a race of demon men, you might say, they were unredeemable. Somehow they produced these beings, and it talks about them there. Their Nephilim is what they're referred to in verse 4. And Jesus, God had to pronounce these beings to be drowned. He says it in verse 3, The Lord said, My spirit will not always strive with men forever. In other words, I'm not going to take this any longer. You're not going to cross this line. And it mentions in verse 4, the Nephilim, that could reference these weird beings that were produced. And like I said, we don't have you know, all the information here. We're just kind of conjecturing, but this is what it seems to kind of make sense in my mind. The Bible calls them mighty men of, of renown. They were kind of supermen. They were superhuman Superhuman creature, the Bible says. And God had to judge the whole earth as a result of that. I mean, that's who these, these demons are. They cross that line. And that's what Second Peter is telling us. These demons were incarcerated because of that sin, getting out of their own sphere there and, and entering into the human sphere, which they should not have done. What their motivation was, who knows. And so he went down there and he accomplished the redemption. He died on the cross. And he said, you know what? You can't corrupt, corrupt the redemption that I'm providing. And so he pronounced his victory over them. And those demons are now in Tartarus, in that black pit. They're awaiting to be cast finally into a place called the what? The final hell, the lake of fire. And you say, well, what's the point here? What's, what's, what's Peter's point? His point is simply this. Angels are so much far superior than just a human being. If you don't think for a second that God would judge a human being by, by going in a wrong direction, think what he did to something as powerful as an angel. He takes truth very seriously. And so when we teach or when we preach or when we teach Sunday school or a Bible study or whatever, we better make sure that we understand that we're teaching the text as it's revealed to us. 
on the pages of Scripture. That we're not drawing other stuff into it. That's why we teach through the Bible, because you have to take it in its context. So important. So if God didn't spare these greater angelic beings, don't think that he's going to spare these false prophets, these false teachers. He's going to judge them. Their day will come. That's just the the first example. We're going to get into the other two next week, the ancient world and Sodom and Gomorrah. But the point is this, basically, is that we need to take seriously the Word of God. We have to take seriously His truth. We should take it seriously when we study it, when we read it, when we pray over it, when we teach it to others. We don't have the right, beloved, to go out there and just make up whatever we want. We're restricted. Just like those demons are restricted In their behavior, if they cross a certain line, they're in trouble. We're restricted as Christians to make sure that we're teaching and presenting God's truth the way that it's been presented to us by Him. So so important. So important to to remember that, that fact. Next week, we'll get into the other two points. But let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. Lord, we... Some may look at this coming judgment and be fearful. They may be wondering, are they going to face this kind of judgment? Because, Lord, you say that you will judge sin in every form. That nobody's going to escape this. The only people that get a reprieve, get a pass on your judgment are those who are covered by the blood of Christ. Those who have embraced the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And Lord, it's only by grace that that can happen. And so Father, if there's any here, Lord, who has yet to understand the fullness of their salvation in Christ have yet to understand what it means to be forgiven of their sin by the work of Christ. I pray that you would do that work in their heart right now, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would cause them to repent, that you would cause them to turn from their sin to a Savior that loves them and died for them. Father, no one desires to go to hell. If they do, they don't know what hell is. And let me say, just because you don't believe it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Because it does. And we thank you, Lord, for providing a way out. And Father, I pray that as Christians, as we go out to this lost and dying world, that we would have that news of the gospel on the tip of our tongue, that we'd be able to share that with people who've yet to come to Christ. That we would be able to share the truth of the gospel with them. And then allow you to do that work of grace and mercy in their lives. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.